context. While getting to know him as a person and his family, going back to their immigration from Russia immediately following the revolution. Beyond that, during my two years of research, I had the good fortune to get to know Bill and meet his father, Joseph, shortly before he died. Having taken my nephews along on the trip, we found ourselves at Joseph Bonanno's home, where the feisty godfather, then in his mid-90s, told anecdotes about Al Capone, the Kennedys, and the priceless gem about having once bribed President Calvin Coolidge. Prior to that, I had, of course, instructed my nephews, Matt, 15, and Colin, 10, to be polite and on their best behavior. Once we'd finished talking and were about to leave, I was careful to point out that I wanted them to shake hands and say thank you for the hospitality. As it turned out, the conversation was enthralling, and at its conclusion, Colin and Matt lined up dutifully in front of me to bid farewell to the retired godfather. As Bill and his nephew Frank looked on, Colin stepped forward expecting to shake hands when, to his shock and amazement, the old man turned his right cheek to him. Colin was mortified, not having a clue about what he should do, but wanting to remain ever polite, simply stood there in silence. It was then that his older brother nudged him. He wants you to kiss him, stupid, he exhorted. At which time Colin looked into the eyes of the grizzled Joseph Bonanno, whose cheek was still showing, then turned to me in total desperation, asked, Where? Our goodbyes were suitably arranged in the moments that followed, and we all had a good-natured laugh about the comedies of everyday life. Still, sensing at that moment the possibilities for historical intimacy that Eliot's story offered, I vowed then to write something more than just another mafia book. I wanted to capture not just his life, but the Cosa Nostra way of life from his unique perspective, interweaving the exploits of Rudolf Giuliani, for example, known to him through his career as a well-respected Manhattan surgeon, with those of John Gotti, known to him through his alternate life as Il Dottore, the Mafia Doctor. In the final analysis, then, I was determined to discover who this man was. How could he be so driven by the need to heal and achieve social acceptability in his visible life, yet demonstrate such destructive tendencies steeped up to his eyeballs in what, at best, could be described as moral ambiguity in his invisible one? Was there a price to pay for living too much? The answer would come for Elliot Littner in the unlikely specter of heart patient Ralph Scopo, union official and capo for the Colombo crime family, whom he would be coerced both to murder and to save on the operating table of New York City's Mount Sinai Hospital in December 1986. What was the price for cutting a Faustian deal with New York High Society and the Godfathers of La Cosa Nostra? This was the mystery I set out to solve in the biography of a physician forced to probe for truth amid the inner workings of the Mafia, the hidden agendas of American hypocrisy, and the darkest recesses of his own spirituality. R.F. Mendham, New Jersey, August 2004 Chapter 1. The Commission Giuliani had achieved a national visibility he'd craved his entire life. Foley Square, February 27, 1985, 10.35 a.m. A buzz of speculation swirled around U.S. Attorney Rudolph Giuliani as he stood on the federal courthouse steps in Manhattan. Flanked by FBI Director William Webster, the news conference had a carnival air about it as television and newspaper reporters roiled around New York's top federal lawmen calling out questions, popping camera flashbulbs, and shooting videotape as he tried to wave them down. The New York City Bar Association called you overzealous and said your use of RICO has led to abuses. What do you say about that? asked David Margulik, then of the New York Times.
I'd say the provincials had stopped acting like a trade organization, Rudy shot back, casting a quick grin in Webster's direction. What about John Gotti, called out NBC's Gabe Pressman. There's reports that with Castellano out of the picture, he's the new boss of bosses. No comment. You want to be mayor? That's the word down at City Hall, shouted Newsday's Lenny Levitt. I've been you at the attorney less than a year, Lenny. Why don't you give me a break? Rudy answered, then directing himself to the crowd and Webster, who stood by his side bemused. Well, come on, guys, he exhorted. Let's get a little organized here. The night before, on February 26, 1985, 50 major mob leaders were busted and hauled before a swarm of cameras in Foley Square. Today, Giuliani was about to rock the world of organized crime again by announcing grand jury indictments against the bosses of New York's five ruling mafia families. This is a great day for law enforcement, Giuliani proudly declared, but a bad day, probably the worst ever for the mafia because we have not only attacked the heart, but the brain of La Cosa Nostra. Based on taped evidence, he asserted, the U.S. Attorney's Office would prove that the heads of the five Mafia families essentially ran the construction industry in New York, collecting 2% of the price of every significant contract in the state. Giuliani then presented the indictment charging the bosses with running a RICO enterprise known, since its formation in 1931, as the Commission. Indicted were Paul, Big Paul Castellano, Gambino family, Anthony Fat Tony Salerno, Genovese family, Gennaro Jerry Lang Langella, Colombo family, Anthony Tony Ducks Corallo, Lucchese family, Philip Rusty Rustelli, Bonanno family. In other words, every ruling godfather in the state. On that day and the next, Giuliani appeared on ABC's Evening News, Nightline, Good Morning America, and CBS's Morning News, boasting about his prosecutorial triumph. In those 48 hours, he achieved a national visibility he'd craved and worked for his entire life. Then it happened. An event that would forever link Elliot Littner's fate with the destinies of two of this generation's most extraordinary men, future New York City Mayor Rudolph Giuliani and John Gotti, Time Magazine's Teflon Don, and heir apparent to the throne of the nation's most powerful mafia crime family. On November 13, 1986, in the midst of the commission trial, Ralph Scopo, president of the Concrete Workers District Council, complained of nausea and numbness in his right arm. Then, while listening to prosecution tapes of himself secretly recorded by the FBI, he stood and clutched his chest, seized by a knife-like thrust of excruciating pain. He turned to his left toward Assistant U.S. Attorney Michael Chertoff, as if to say something, then to his right, robotic, as he tried to move out from behind the defense desk. Finally, reaching for the oak rail behind him, he fell forward, then collapsed to the courtroom floor, suffering a heart attack. Coronary patient Ralph Scopo lay motionless on the operating table at Mount Sinai Hospital, chest bare, electrodes attached to the back of his shoulders, intravenous needles inserted into his right arm and left wrist. Fifty-six years old, grossly overweight, and a three-pack-a-day smoker, Giuliani's pride and joy had collapsed four weeks earlier, headlines in the morning papers screaming, Scopo heart attack disrupts racketeering trial. But there was much more to it than racketeering. This case was an attempt by the FBI and New York City's organized crime task force to bring down the commission, the bosses of the five La Cosa Nostra families that governed organized crime in New York and possibly the nation. In the background played The Wanderer, a 1961 hit by Dion in place of Verdi or Puccini, Elliot's usual fare.
The anesthesiologist jerked Scopo's head back so the blunt blade of the L-shaped laryngoscope could be put in his throat and a one-half-inch endotracheal tube inserted past his vocal cords. A balloon on the tube's lower end inflated, created an airtight seal as Clark Hinterleiter, the resident surgeon, inserted a Foley catheter through Scopo's penis into his bladder, then nodded to Dr. Elliot Littner, the chief operating surgeon. Littner glanced to his right, where outside operating room number two, the Giuliani team of three federal investigators, led by Special Agent Peter Hogan, awaited the operation's outcome like vultures. Then to his left, where John Gotti's right hand, Sammy the Bull Gravano, and two of his underlings loomed nearby the patient's waiting room, pacing the floor with equal intensity. The Brooks Brothers Ivy Leaguers versus the polyester suit Goombas, Littner mused sardonically, the voice in his head sounding like a cross between Woody Allen and a manic Jerry Lewis. How the hell did a nerdy Jewish kid from the Bronx get caught up in a mess like this, he anguished. The feds went Scopo alive to prosecute and twist into a government witness against New York's five families. The good fellows don't want him leaving this operating room alive. Either way, it's understood. Littner was a dead man. Dion warbled in the background about Flo on the left, Mary on the right, and Janie being the girl he'll be with tonight. When Janie asked who he loves the best, Dion tears open his shirt to show Rosie on his chest. Because I'm the wanderer. Yeah, the wanderer. I go around, around, around. The chest was open, the heart-lung machine ready to go. It was impossible to stall any longer. It was time for Elliot Littner, a man who could have been the poster boy for moral ambiguity, to choose between life or death, loyalty to La Cosa Nostra, or devotion to his Hippocratic Oath. Fifty cc's going in to test the line, the technician announced. On bypass, Littner commanded.